I do want to get started this evening on a, on a new series that I'm pretty excited about. I, I had this idea some time ago and shelved it because every time I would arrive at the end of a series, another book would really start to set in. And I, I like doing books of the Bible in this setting because it lets us do something that's not easy to do on a Sunday morning in, in regular church. And that is really just tackle a scripture and just let it speak to us. Um, I've tried to do that repeatedly. We did all kinds of books and we've done studies, church, Calvary, Sermon on the Mount. This is not any of those. Uh, and on the, on its face, this, I don't think sounds all that appealing. I'll be honest, but I think we can do it in a way that's enjoyable. And that is just a study of individual words inside of the new Testament. Again, I know that doesn't sound amazing, but I believe that if we can uncover, bring to light some things that maybe we've lost in translation, that maybe haven't settled into our English vernacular in the way that maybe it was intended to coming from the Greek, that we can add new life to, to old texts. And, and we're, I'm not trying to be super creative, and I'm not trying to, I'm certainly not bemoaning the translation and saying that it could have been done better or that I know what I'm doing, but just trying to uncover some things that, that aren't on the surface. And so this is a study. Uh, tonight's lesson is called Tomorrow Bread, but I'm, I'm really starting a series that unofficially I'm calling One and Done. And what I mean by that is we're going to take a look at Greek words in the New Testament that appear only one time, and, and then they're gone. And in some cases, they're gone forever. They don't appear anywhere else. They don't appear even outside of the Bible. In some cases, they're gone from that book, and they might appear elsewhere, but they appear within the same story elsewhere, which we'll see tonight because the Gospels um, tell the same story. Sometimes they're words that need help, like they're sitting next to a word that appears a bunch of times, but that word itself needs that common word, and then it brings it to life. We're going to do one of those next week. Uh, and, and Sometimes I'll cheat and break my own rules and we'll do two in one night or I'll do one that appears a couple of times But I just like it and it should appear ten times, but it doesn't and so we'll do it And there's no rules okay? So I'm gonna play fast and loose with my own rules here on this series But for the most part, it's one and done. It's words that that and they're not gonna look familiar in the Greek because we don't know Greek um, And they oftentimes won't even look familiar in the English You'll see it in English and go that words in the Bible a lot you go, no, it's not. It just got translated that way, and it probably shouldn't have. And here's maybe what it could mean. And so we're not trying to land definitively. We're not trying to change your certainty about text. In fact, I don't, I don't think certainty is what we're shooting for anyway. Um, at the end of the day, we're followers of Christ. What we're doing when we study the Bible is trying to see Jesus. If we can bring to light some scriptures that help make that possible in a greater way, that shine the light more brightly upon Jesus, well, then that's a win. And we might not walk out with a greater knowledge of Greek or who cares if you even remember the word, but if it might stick in your Bible study and you might take a note of it and say, consider this in the future when I read this verse, that maybe it has this to say to me and all I ever thought it had to say was this. And if, if you end up at the end of the day with that, to me, that's pretty good Bible study. And then that makes it worthwhile. Um, I call this one tomorrow bread. You'll see why every week when I subtitle it, the, type, the subtitle will pretty much give away the word, what the word really should mean. That doesn't give you the word at the top of the lesson, but for 
purposes of where we're going each week, um, that's kind of how we'll handle it. Um, I want to do this one time at the front of this series, and then I want to, before we get into any text, and we're going to make some of those sort of introductory comments about about the framework of this that I don't want to make every week. Um, And I know that we'll probably kind of need to because there's always different people that jump in, but, you know, that's the way it goes. I don't like to repeat it 15 times. So we're going to jump out of the gate with some sort of scholarly stuff, a little bit of Bible class just to help the framework of this. Um, And then we're going to do two words tonight. See, I'm already breaking my rules. We're going to do two words tonight, but we're really only going to do one. The other one's just for fun. We're going to do an intro word for fun because I know this group and it's a word that um, doesn't get translated the way it could have and had it, then it kind of changes things a little bit. And I thought you, this is the perfect set of people to lay that on. So, um, and then we'll get into one that might actually help you. Actually, tonight, the word, reason I picked this word to start with is that this has really helped me on my journey of prayer. Uh, and and I, if it helped me, maybe it will help you. So, out of the gate, let's deal with this Greek transliterated phrase, hey, Pax legomenon, often just called hey, Pax. Hey, Pax is a uh, textual criticism or a codex lectionary word that really means um, it only appears one time. A word or expression that occurs once within a context. Now, this isn't just a Greek thing. Um, you, can do, you can do this in English. You can do this in German. You can do this in Japanese. Any body of work inside of a single language in which that word appears only one time, that word's called a hapax. And so it's either in the written record of an entire language, like English, or in our case, Greek, or it's in the works of an author, for instance, Shakespeare, who often would use words one time in all of his plays. He would never use it again. Shakespeare is a very unique um, case study because he actually just made things up, too. Made, made up words. Words that entered our vernacular that he just thought sounded like it would fit. That's been really good at what you do. You can squeeze a word in there and then people start using it. Um, Or it could also occur inside of a single text, a single book, like a single book of the Bible, or a single collection of books, like the New Testament, um, a single scroll. Um, But this hapax legomenon is actually a transliterated phrase from the Greek word that means being said once. Um, So the word might appear outside of the scriptures for our purposes, but it appears inside the scripture only one time or only one time within a subset. And so we're going to deal with those um, in a way that hopefully, I think, can be fun. Um, Fun's not a word you use a lot when you study the Bible. Um, I do. I I have for a long time because I I find studying the Bible fun um, because I don't consider myself a disciple of the Bible. That helped. Once I got away from being a disciple of the Bible, then I could read the Bible as a way to find the prophetic voice of God, to see God's love through story, to see God's story through creation, and then to see God wrapped in human flesh through Jesus. And so I can let the Bible then inform me about Christ, and the Bible became fun. When the Bible was a book of history, and the Bible was a book of science, the Bible was a book of literalism and timelines, then it was a book that needed defended. So you're always on the defense with people. You're always playing apologetics. You're always reading a word to defend your position, how old the earth was, how many days it was created, did Noah really float that boat? You were always trying to cross-reference with the archaeological record. You, you felt as if you needed to defend the Scripture's literal stories. As you get out of that mode, and I encourage you, if you can, to get out of that mode, 
then you, the Bible can be fun because it can be an adventure of finding Christ and you can see him around every corner. And you do have permission to read the Bible looking for Jesus. It's the way Jesus taught us to read the Bible. And so then it's not just let me memorize chapters and verses, which is a boring way to read the Bible. Yeah, and we all had to do that sometimes. Maybe you come up through Sunday school, you know, how many verses did you memorize? And, and it took the joy, it just sapped the life out of it. It can be fun. I think stuff like Hey Packs can be fun because you get to dig down below the surface, below the language that's familiar, and go to what's unfamiliar. And then it can be informative because it can show you things you don't see. It also might bring some clarity. It, it really helps to clear the clouds a little bit on some... Um, on some of the language. The, the word that we're going to use tonight, I think, will help bring some clarity to an entire passage of Scripture that sometimes we can discount Scriptures because the translation has left us out in the cold a little bit where we might not have understood what we're looking for. Now, this isn't easy. We're going to try to make it fun, but it's not easy. Um, difficult things can be fun. It's not easy because we're not dealing with source text. We don't have a source text for the Old Testament. We don't have a source text for the New Testament. We have copies handed down past generations, various languages. And I mean, even on the face, we're not dealing with what Jesus said. When we say Jesus said, we're dealing with what was written that Jesus said, written by someone writing in Greek from memory of a man who spoke Aramaic, whose root language was Hebrew, <laughs> who probably didn't write anything down, and so you've got Greek written from Aramaic from a Hebrew-speaking man that then gets translated into Latin for a half of a millennium, and then eventually English and Spanish and German and all over the world. And so we're peeling back an onion, man. We're going layer after layer after layer trying to get to the core of what the text says. That's not easy. One of the reasons I'm not going to mess much with Hebrew in this, um, Greek, as difficult as this study is, Greek's way easier. And here's why, because there's a reason why a hundred years before Christ, 70 elders sat in a room and translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek called the Septuagint. They did that because the whole world was reading Greek. And they went, well, we want the whole world to be able to read our scriptures. We want them to be able to study it. And we can't do that if we leave it in Hebrew because Hebrew is a captive language. In other words, Hebrew is spoken by Hebrews. Uh, up until a few hundred years ago, we, we even had lost the Hebrew language for the most part. It's not a language that even Jews speak day to day with one another. There's variations of it, but not ancient Hebrew. And so Hebrew is more difficult when we deal with singular words because we can't go outside the biblical record and find us a, a secular writer. We can with Greek. We have the writings of Plato and Aristotle. We have the Roman philosophers and the Greek philosophers. We have the historians of the pre-Christ era and the first century and then hundreds of years afterwards. And all of our church fathers were writing in Greek and writing in Latin. And so you can take a word that appears in the New Testament one time, one apex, and then you can go out here to secular literature and find it 500 times. And you can watch how the secular writer uses it to influence what this one might have been trying to say. How else would you know what they're trying to say? You don't have them saying it again. You can't hear them. You don't get inflection, but you might get the word over and over and over again. We don't get that with the Hebrew because you don't have people writing outside the Hebrew language, writing Hebrew commentary. And so the Hebrew becomes a lot more problematic in trying to land on what that word meant. What helps us is the Septuagint. 
which was a little closer to the source material that went, okay, this is what this word means in Greek. So every now and then in our study, we'll come up with a word that's there in the Greek and we'll go, this doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible except one time in the Old Testament, the Septuagint. Well, that wasn't originally written in Greek. It was written in Hebrew. Hope you understand what I mean. And so then that word helps to influence the other one. So we're pulling, in other words, we're pulling from sources when we do translation. We're trying to land on an understanding. This is why it's a fool's errand to say things like, the text clearly says. I mean, you just don't know what you just brought to the table. Um, no, it doesn't, it might clearly read something to you in English, but it might not say that in its intent at all. And this is another reason why we don't make ourselves disciples of the text, because the text is a floating document. It doesn't, I don't mean we're changing it. I mean, we're learning more about it. We're, we're getting better at it. For instance, when the King James translation of the Bible happened in 1611, this is the early 17th century. It's not the first English translation. That would have been the Tyndale translation of the English, but it was the greatest at its time. It was written by the same lofty language that Shakespeare is using in the Globe Theater at the time. And it was written using the best copies of the Greek they had available. Our translations now are using copies of the Greek hundreds of years older than the translators of the King James even knew existed. We found them. And, and that's why some of your translations now don't look exactly like the King James, which causes a lot of minds to be blown when they feel like one translation is superior to another. So we're not trying, I'm not, this isn't to convince of translation or for you to walk out and go, now I know what that word means in the Greek forever and forever. It's just meant to stir, okay? And if, it, if that is what happens, great. Um, this isn't meant to either encourage or discourage you, but just to inform you, there are 686 haypacks in the New Testament. We could do this 686 <laughs> times. There are 686 single uses. Okay, we will not, I promise you, do this. 600, that is a lot of years. I see you doing the math. Was that 12 years, 14 years, at 52 weeks a year into 600? Okay, no, we're not going to do that. Um, I can't promise you five of them. I don't know if we'll do 20 of them. I'm just going to let it happen every week. And if, if I get to one one week and I go, you know what? I think I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. Then we'll probably say, okay, that's it. We'll go somewhere else next week. We'll try this and we'll try a new angle. Okay. So that's not meant to um, discourage you. Um, just for instance, some writers like to use words nobody else uses. Peter, first Peter, second Peter, 112 haypacks. A sixth of all of the usages in the New Testament of individual unique words occur in two letters. First Peter, second Peter. First Peter, second Peter is a, is a Greek anomaly in regards to the words being used, which has caused a lot of scholars to believe it's not written by the Simon Peter that's on the boat deck in, on the Sea of Galilee. But I leave that for other wiser men than myself. We'll let that, we'll let that go. Um, Let's get started with one that I think will sort of, this one, I'll be honest with you, this one has no spiritual value. <laughs> I, I, okay, I thought about it today and went, could I make it have spiritual value? I probably can, but I don't think it would be, um, I, don't, I, I, I wouldn't trust it. Um, 
it's just an example of uh, Hapex Legomenon that I thought might be interesting to you. Matthew 15, 17. This is not our word of the night. This is our warm-up word of the night, all right? And I'm not going to do a ton with our word of the night. This is just an intro week. So I thought it would be good to have a, a, an intro word. Matthew 15, 17. Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? And I put up the other usage, which by definition, then you go, well, how can it be a hapex? It's used twice. Yes, but it's the same story and... Most scholars would, would agree that Matthew builds his gospel off of Mark. And therefore, if he finds a word unique to Mark, he simply repeats it. He doesn't use it in a unique setting. So technically, it's just a copy and paste of the original word being dropped into Mark's, Matthew's version. So I'm going to read the original then, Mark 7. And I threw 18, 19 in for context. Jesus says, are you thus without understanding? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. Now, just in case we tr need to try to give, we've got to try to give some sort of biblical exegesis on this passage. Jesus is being questioned about not washing hands and eating foods. And this is, this is going to be a, a lead. And this is sort of the lobby to Paul's food and drink arguments of Romans. Uh, and Jesus is, is essentially saying, it's not, it's not what goes in. It's what comes out. It, the defilement is not you, you ate with unwashed hands. That's why you're messed up. But it's already in here. That's why you're messed up. Not, not because of the diet or whatever that you have. Okay, so but let's take a look at the word. Eliminated, or in the King James, the word draught, Jesus said it's eliminated from the body. It's the Greek word aphidron. It appears nowhere else in the New Testament. And it appears only one time in any other literature. And I'll always try to let you know this if I can when it appears outside of it because I find that interesting. And it took years, it took centuries for us to find it anywhere else. And we did during the archaeological excavation of the ancient Turkish city, Pergamon, which is in the book of Revelation. Remember, Pergamon, the seat of Satan. And what they found is a book of ancient city law, which contained detailed rules pertaining to the maintenance of public lavatories. We figured that out because of the way that the wording was structured on how you were to govern the sewage system of Pergamon. And the Greek word they used, they hadn't seen anywhere else. And the Greek word was aphidron, which is the ancient word for latrine, or what we might consider the bathroom, the toilet. And so take aphidron, go back. Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and goes out in the latrine? It's eliminated, not just dissolved, but pooped out. Is literally what Jesus says in the Greek. I don't know why when the new king, when the King James scholars got to the word ephedrone, they went with eliminated. Possibly they didn't know what to do with it. It's also quite possible they did know what to do with it and just didn't want to have Jesus say in toilet or latrine and went, eh, we'll just use the word eliminated. I thought that was a fun one to get you started. It has no spiritual value. I don't think you're better Christians because you know it. You might be more at ease when you read your Bible because, yes, even Jesus went to the bathroom. 
If you needed that to help you humanize Jesus, then it's my pleasure to help humanize Jesus. All right, that is not meant to calm your spiritual soul tonight. That doesn't help you really at all. Tonight's lesson is from Matthew chapter 6. We go to the Sermon on the Mount into what is famously referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Let's read it, Matthew chapter 6. And we got the entire thing up here through verse 13. In this manner, therefore, pray our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is most likely a late addition to the text. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Most of our earliest Greek doesn't have Jesus with that tag at the end. That doesn't matter so much for us tonight. We actually studied this pretty in-depth in the Sermon on the Mount. We even broke the prayer down into different parts, and so we walked through it. And I, don't, I didn't go back and listen to what I did there. Because um, I don't like to all the time. Because I want to know where I am today. I don't, I don't just want to know where I was. Because that will influence me if I go back. And then it'll, it'll seem as if I'm still there. Because sometimes I'll repeat things I said because I thought, well, that sounded good. And so I don't do that often. I try to be very fresh in the moment to go, what, what do I see now? Um, and so I don't know what I told you then about that prayer. Um, but I will tell you now that I was kept from the Lord's Prayer in my New Covenant journey for several years. I don't mean I was kept from it as in you're not allowed to pray this, but I was discouraged in it when I started preaching grace because I was taught quickly by other voices that it was an Old Covenant prayer. And that you shouldn't pray old covenant prayers, you're a new covenant believer. And that, that stuff gets in you to the point where you start to discount Jesus a little bit. It was one of the things that happened to me in this grace journey early on was that without knowing what I was doing, I, I discounted Jesus a little bit. I didn't discount him as a figure. I didn't discount his saving power, his death, his burial, his resurrection. He's the centerpiece of my faith, but I discounted his words a little bit because he wasn't he wasn't teaching on the other side of Pentecost. He wasn't teaching on the other side of the cross. And therefore, he wasn't teaching, and by the other side, I mean my side. He wasn't teaching on my side of the cross, which means he hadn't shed his blood for the redemption of sins. And, I, and, and that mentality made me say things like the following. Oh, Jesus never asks anyone if they want to accept him as their personal savior because he hasn't yet died on the cross and raised from the dead. I would say things like that. And I... I preached that for years because I would look and go, why doesn't Jesus say to these people, you want to you get saved? Go, well, because he couldn't do it because he hadn't yet died for their sins. And, and now I, I see that as such an elementary misunderstanding of what Jesus came to do because Jesus did not come to get you to pray a prayer. Jesus didn't come to get you to believe a verse. Jesus came to show you the life of the Father. And that by, by you, because Jesus even says it in John 17, this is eternal life, Father, that they may know you and him whom you have sent. So just to know the life of God, Jesus comes to, to present that to the world. And he does, he's not trapped inside of an old covenant. He's living in a world obsessed with an old covenant, but he's the walking, talking embodiment of the new covenant. 
Everything that comes out of Jesus' mouth, we covered this in the Sermon on the Mount. We need to say it again. Everything that came out of his mouth was the constitution of the kingdom. He's telling you what his dad's house looks like. Here's how my dad treats his enemies. Here's how my dad treats the poor. Here's how my dad treats you. Here's what my dad thinks about your sin. This is why I won't cast the first stone at you. This is why I raised Lazarus from the dead. Because I am the new covenant. If it comes out of my mouth, he's saying, this is what it looks like. This is what it sounds like. So now I look at the Lord's prayer and I go, okay, I get to pray that. But one of the reasons why I was discouraged from it is because Jesus says in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Now let me break down why that was such a big deal for me. That seems so simple now, but maybe there's still someone who struggles. When the children of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, they entered the wilderness after Sinai. They tell God, we, we don't want to talk to you. We want to talk only to Moses. And God says, okay. And then he gives the law. You know the story. When Israel goes into the wilderness, they don't have any, they don't own any land. Nothing will grow out there. They don't have enough food. They're not two weeks in and they're dying. And they go, we, we wish we could go back to Egypt and eat good. I mean, at least there we got to eat. And God says, you've forgotten how bad it was, haven't you? But I tell you what, I'll take care of you anyway. Go to bed, wake up in the morning. When you open the tent flap, there's going to be something on the ground. And they do. And they, they open the tent flap and they go, manna, which is the Hebrew word for what is it? Manna, which literally means what is it? They don't even know what it is. They go, what is this? And they love it. And the, 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 the scriptures say that it tasted like honey and it was beautiful to their sight. And so they collect it and they eat it and, it's, and then they're told, don't take two days worth. And so if you do, it'll rot. But if you are faithful, go back, open the tent flap the next day, it'll, still, it'll be there, brand new. And so every day, manna, manna, daily bread, wilderness bread. A whole generation dies in the wilderness. And when you get to the end of the wilderness journey, the Bible says they go to the Lord and they complain about the manna. And they even describe it. And they describe the way it looks and the way it tastes. And it's changed color in their eyes and it's changed taste in their mouth. Nothing changed. God is an unchanging God. God didn't change the menu of manna. It's just they've grown sick of it. They're tired of the old bread the daily bread, the wilderness bread. And they crossed the Jordan River under the command of Joshua. And the Bible says that on the third day that they arrive in the promised land, they open the tent flap and the manna's gone. And God told them, you're in the promised land, no more manna. You are now to plant fields and gather harvest and be producers. And what that tells us in the new covenant is, is that we are no longer a people who are reliant on manna, the everyday miracle of God, but instead we have the everlasting provision of God. We are a promised land. We are a promised people. And we are, we're not beggars, we're entrepreneurs in the realm of the spirit. And so we can receive of the full favor of God, not daily, but in a permanent fashion. And I believe all of that. I very passionately believe that it is not God's desire for me to, to have to beg. It doesn't mean 
that I'm unholy if I have to beg. And it doesn't mean God's not faithful if I have to beg. But God's a good father. And he no more wants me to have to beg than I want my son to have to beg. And, and I faithfully believe that about the new covenant. That we've entered into a promised land. That something's changed. That we've left an old covenant into a new covenant. And I think you can stay in daily bread mentality so long that it changes color and taste to you. That what used to be good is no longer good because you've become disgruntled with where you are, which is a really good psychological and spiritual lesson of don't stay in the same place too long till you hate it. Because that's what happens when you stay in the same place too long. You start to hate it. (laughs) And the thing that used to be so great is now so terrible and it's your first indication that it's time to cross a river. There's land on the other side. Well, the grass is always greener on the other side. That's because sometimes the grass is actually greener on the other side. That's where that statement come from. Because people found some green grass over there and went over there and went, hey guys, guess what? It's actually greener over here. Now I know it's not always, but sometimes you're supposed to cross the river and that's the story. And so I would you know, read the Lord's Prayer and say, this is what Jesus taught us to pray, but then get discouraged from it because of this statement. Don't You don't have to pray, give us our daily bread because God isn't in the business of giving you daily bread. He's in the business of giving you forever bread. So you can kick the whole prayer out. And if that wasn't enough, then forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. They go, well, you don't need to ask God to forgive your sins. He's already forgiven your sins. And I went through that phase for a long time too and realized that I don't ask God forgiveness of my sins because I need God to forgive me. I ask God to forgive my sins because I need me to let go. And I ask you to forgive me because I need to repair my relation with you. Because sometimes my sickness is due to the fact that I refuse to acknowledge to you. And I don't just mean physical sickness. I mean all of my sicknesses. All of that ails me is due to the fact that I won't let go of whatever it is I've done to you or have received restitution with you or or repaired that bridge with you. And this stuff... Don't put that in one covenant or the other. Just understand that there are things that we need to do. So, daily. Daily is the Greek word epiosios. It occurs nowhere else in all the known ancient Greek literature. Our best expert in Greek. Literally the best we've ever had in the church. And we got some really good ones now. But the best we ever had was third century theologian. He's on, he's on fire at like 252, 254 AD is the Christian theologian Origen. You get a hold of any of Origen's writings, pay attention. He claimed that Epiosos was coined by the evangelists. Both Matthew and Luke record the Lord's Prayer. And he claims that Matthew and Luke coined it. So granted, maybe we got two different guys using it. But also Matthew and Luke, here's just a free bonus. Matthew and Luke are probably sourcing their material off the old ancient lost gospel called the Q. The Q is, was believed to be the original source text out of which Mark wrote. We don't know exactly where it went. We don't know exactly who wrote it, but we know that there was enough verbal reference to it in the early, I don't want to say in the early church, but in early writings, that there's been a suspicion that there was a document by which Matthew, Mark, and Luke worked off of. And if that's the case, Matthew and Luke are using off of a word that had never been coined anywhere else before. Epiosios. Um, Origen also believed that because they probably made it up, 
You can really only properly interpret what they might have meant by the context into which they wrote it. Here's a good little tip for study. If you don't know what in the world you're reading, you're not reading enough verses. That's a first place to start. So if you read a verse and you go, what in the world's that all about? Well, well, I guess, you know, I guess I'll figure it out later. You probably need to add a little bit in front of it and maybe you need to add a little bit behind it because a lot of times there's a lot going on in the story. And if you would pay attention to what happens in front, what happens behind, it would help. This is, a, this is an ABC 123 kindergarten example, but I'm going to do it anyway. Prodigal son. Everybody knows it, right? Guy's got two boys, old and young. Dad gives us our inheritance. One runs off, wastes his substance on riotous living. The other, one, you know, the other one's out in the field. You know the story. You know it top to bottom. You might have got saved because of it. Because someone told you you were slopping hogs or you're out in the field, you need to come back to Jesus. Come back to the Father. Beautiful story, but it's the third of three stories. If you haven't read the first two, you're probably going to get the third one wrong. Most Christians don't even realize it's the third of a trilogy. They think they're watching the part one. It's part three. The first story... They're all, and by the way, if you got story, 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 all in a collection, they're probably about the same thing. And if you could figure out what they're about, well, it would help with interpretation. And so the first story is there's a shepherd, has a hundred sheep. He loses one, so he leaves 99 of them. He goes out to find the one. And when he finds it, he comes home, carrying it on his shoulders, and he throws a party. Hey, come rejoice. My sheep that was lost is found. Irrational love. No shepherd leaves 99, go find one. That's a death sentence. And he's so excited that he found him and he throws a party. And then there's a woman who has her favorite coin. I don't know why it's her favorite coin. It's a little bit of an odd story. She's got a coin she loves. Maybe it's the most expensive coin in the house. That's what I like to think. She's got a lot of coins, but this coin is worth something and she loses it. And she tears the house upside down and then she finds the coin. And when she finds it, she spends it on a party to invite her friends to rejoice with her because she found her coin. The same coin that she spends to throw a party because she found her coin. This is a circular argument, right? Irrational excitement over finding something that meant so much to you, maybe so little to everybody else. And then he doubles down. And he goes, there was a guy who had two boys. And he describes those boys in great detail. And it's entirely irrational to give your inheritance away before you're dead. Nobody gives their inheritance away before they're dead. You would have caught that if you'd read the irrational two stories in front of it. And the irrationality continues. And you throw a party for the kid who comes back and wasted all your money on riotous living. You're going to spend more money on a wasteful kid to rejoice because he's home. And the whole point is that God is extravagantly, unnaturally, inexplicably obsessed with his stuff, and you're one of them. And that's awesome. And you cheapen it if it's just about getting saved. And we've cheapened it forever because we didn't read the first two stories. So context is king. And you're gonna find that a lot in these Hapex stories. You gotta go, gotta figure out what's going on because the context will help me out quite a bit. So let's do a little bit of that in two ways. One, immediate context. Just watch how the, the Lord's Prayer begins. Watch how it unfolds. In this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Did you catch a matching word? I tried to emphasize it. 
our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name, King, come, will be done as earth as enemy. Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus jumps back to the pronoun, the collective pronoun our. The Lord's prayer was never to be individualistic. It wasn't just a prayer of my Father who art in heaven. It's a, it's a corporate prayer. It's a communal prayer. Our Father who art in heaven. And if it's our Father, then it's our bread, which is bigger than just you. So you're not asking God simply to give you your allotment for the day. You're praying for him and her when you ask for daily bread. Because you're not saying, give me mine today. You're saying, give us ours. It's impossible to pray it singular. You're not taught to pray it singular. You're taught to pray it plural. He's our father. He's not my father. He's our father who art in heaven. I don't just get to claim him. I don't get to exclude his kids. I don't get to decide who's in, who's out. He's our father. I don't get to ask just for my bread. I'm asking for our bread. And when it becomes our, it becomes collective. And when it becomes collective, you become responsible. Because if it's our daily bread, it's our bread. So it's not just my bread. It's his bread and her bread and her bread and his bread. And, and then if that's the case, there's no such thing as my bread. Pretty subversive prayer. It's collective. Ours. And so... It has to mean more than just the bread for me today and now. That doesn't do the rest of the world any good. That's only part of the context. As far as I'm concerned, what's most important might be found just a little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, same chapter, 25, 26, and we'll jump down to 31, 32. We'll go straight through it. Therefore, I say to you, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink. Don't worry about your body, what you put on. Isn't your life more than food? Isn't your body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't even gather anything into barns. They're not collecting for tomorrow. It's not a concern of the birds of the air. But the Heavenly Father still feeds them. When? Think about it. They don't put anything up for tomorrow, but the Heavenly Father feeds them when? Tomorrow. How did He do that? They didn't even do anything today to prepare for tomorrow. So Jesus isn't, he's not dealing with the people that are worried about getting their daily bread. He's dealing with the people that are worried about getting their tomorrow bread. He goes, look at the birds. They don't worry about their tomorrow bread. Don't, aren't you more valuable? This is one of the great questions of the New Testament. Are you not more valuable than a bird? Are you not more valuable than a flower? 31, don't worry. And ask, what should we eat? Or what should we drink? Or what should we wear? These are the things the Gentiles seek. This is natural. This is like, this is confined within the secular world. For your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. He's, just not, he's not blind to it. He knows what you need. He knows what you desire. In Luke's gospel, he will say that it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you all the things that you need appropriate for that moment. So what then could we do? Based on context, based on it's a collective prayer, based on that as Jesus keeps talking he says, hey, the birds don't even store up for tomorrow. They don't worry about tomorrow's bread. And yet the Father still provides for them. What might epiosios actually mean? Because by the way, daily was just made up. Give us this day our daily bread. Why did they get the word daily? They had never seen the word epiosios. They didn't get it because it's the word for daily. 
They just picked a word. They went, and this is a little bit of the problem sometimes when you're trying to be poetic and you're being poetic in the wrong language. Give us this day our daily bread sounds great. That's Shakespearean. That's how Shakespeare would have wrote it. Maybe he did. <laughs> Give us this day our daily bread. Epiosios. What, what made you say daily? Well, I don't know. I didn't know what else to do with it because it doesn't exist anywhere else. But if it's a collective and the father's not just taking care of me, he's taking care of you and that's a tomorrow thing and the birds don't have to store up for tomorrow because he takes care of them tomorrow, then maybe, Epiosios, and I'm not alone in this, this is one of the scholarly landing spots for this word, it means bread for the future or tomorrow bread. The true bread of God is an anticipation of the world to come. The true bread of God is the bread of himself. When the Latin Vulgate took this word, epiosios, the Latin Vulgate precedes the English translation, by the way. Latin Vulgate is what most of the church deals with for a thousand years prior to the first English translation. The Latin Vulgate translates this word super substantial. So it's not just substantial bread, it's super substantial. It's a bread beyond just the bread that is necessary. We live today from tomorrow. We live today from the love of God. Here's what I wish I had known. Pray the Lord's Prayer. If the word daily bothers you, it probably should. It's not in there. Just consider that Jesus doesn't say, give us this day our bread for today. He said, give us this day our bread from tomorrow. Because you're a God that cares about our tomorrows. Let me eat today the bread of the future. Let me eat the bread that's not of this dimension. Give us today what we can't possibly get today in this system. Give us today what can only be gotten from the one outside of this system. Give us this day our tomorrow bread, our forever bread, our heavenly bread. Or I like the way Jesus frames it in John 6, 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Your fathers are dead. This is the bread that comes down from heaven that if you eat of it, you'll not die. I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh which I shall give for the life of the world. And yet you, you consume Jesus and you die. So he's not talking about naturally, but he's talking about the life that never ends. Eat of me and you receive the life that never ends. That's, I think, the Epiosios bread. That's not bread for today. That's bread for today from tomorrow. So pray the Lord's Prayer. Pray it with confidence. Pray it in the collective. I wish I had known this long before I do, or long before I now do, but I have taken to praying this prayer often, more so in the last year or two than I did in my entire life put together because I've started to take Jesus serious. Paul, your prayer isn't just about you, it is about others. And your prayer is not, this isn't to be ignored because you're afraid you're praying an old covenant request for a daily stipend from heaven. But instead, you're praying to receive from heaven what can only come from tomorrow. What cannot come from this world can only come from the dimension that is ahead. I thought because of what an impact that that's had on the way that I view this text, that this is a good place to start this little series. It's to say, 
sometimes if you could just get to the source, it might relieve you a little bit. And it might even enhance your life a little bit in a way that maybe you've jumped past that phrase because you didn't realize what it was saying. And maybe now it says a little more. And if that's the case, that seems like a win to me because it broadens your prayer life just a little bit, broadens your prayer palette just a little bit. Let's pray, and let's pray collective. So when you pray tonight, let it be a we prayer, our prayer, O-U-R. Not just a me, not just God do this for me, but how about an our prayer? That as we study the Word of God over the next several weeks and several months, really just taking a look at these words, trying to get our mind around them, may we come to a place of understanding that we haven't been before. Father, we thank you tonight. We thank you as a group who has had a, a long-standing journey together in studying the Word. And now we turn our focus for a little bit into these words that are unfamiliar in a language that none of us really understand. But the truth is, that, Father, we're just trying to get into the heart a little bit more. Not to be right. It's not about getting correct doctrine or scriptural understanding, but just to get to the heart of who you are. And Father, we ask that as you unveil these to us, that Father, you reveal the love that we know is there. It's not hard to find. You may, may, it, may it permeate every scripture and every text. I pray for our viewers, our listeners, our, our friends from afar who have made this little room every week a part of their lives they're taking this journey with us we pray as if they're in this room together believing that we are all linked we are all connected that it isn't just about my blessing or this room's blessing but we pray for our tomorrow bread anticipating you to do what only you can do from the place that only you can do it. In Jesus' name, amen.